Awesome. All right, well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would turn there. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, man, we would love to give you a copy for your own. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, in you, or maybe you misplaced your Bible, we have some on the back table. We'd love that to be our gift to you. Uh, you can also look it up if you've got an, a smartphone in front of you, and it's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be using the ESV translation. Now, our passage today, I'm going to let you know up front, covers a variety of controversial topics that are contentious and blurry and disputed in the world around us. Topics like, how should women dress? Is a man the head of his household? Can I decide if I don't like my gender? And this is why I'm so grateful. Psalm 119 says this. Your word is a, hear this, lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Meaning this. Every time we open the Bible like this, we are opening a light into a dark and dim room. And so, as we read 1 Corinthians 11, which there are a number of things you're going to be thinking uh, as we read through this passage, let's remember that the purpose is not to confuse. The purpose is actually to give light. So let's ask that the Lord would give us that light in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. This is God's word. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word. And Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray you'd give us eyes to see. Lord, we pray that you turn the lamp on uh, in this passage, that it might illuminate our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, at first glance, this passage has everything. It has everything that makes people disregard the Bible and stop believing it, stop listening to it. It has what at first appear to be a collection of outdated gender stereotypes. It, it appears to have strange cultural allusions to things that we don't fully understand. And it is probably the most detailed discussion about hairstyles and baldness in the Bible. So if you have come here today for hairstyle advice, you're in the right place. This is, this is great. Uh, no, actually, it's not about that. But have you ever been, uh, had the experience of being in a dark room, and, the, and it's very dark in there, and yet you open the door to the next room, and it's very bright in the next room? So maybe thinking, you're walking out of a movie theater in the middle of the summer, you're walking out of the movie theater, and I remember at Sunland Park, the, they, there was like like 10 feet between some of the doors, you know, you'd be in the movie theater, you'd walk out, and then poof, you'd open the door, and then bam, the El Paso sun would be, ah, my eyes, you know, and you're stumbling your way to your car. But noting that in the end, that's probably more helpful. It's probably more helpful to be able to see everything around you than to live in darkness. And this passage is that moment. It's the moment where we 
push open the door, realize we have been living in this sort of darkness and cultural confusion. We open it and it takes a minute for our eyes to adjust. Maybe your eyes water up a little bit and you're stumbling around and you're disoriented. That is this passage. But it is far better to allow our eyes to get used to seeing what scripture has in front of us than to live in darkness. Now, in his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul the Apostle has been discussing and correcting their view of marriage and singleness and sex and gender. And he's about to begin covering the gathering of the church. How the church is meant to, to interact with one another. How the church is meant to uh, live with one another. And this passage is, is right at the crux of that. It's, it's right at the intersection of sex and the sacraments or gender and the gathering. And on both of those issues, I would say, there is massive cultural confusion in and outside of the church today. So, let me give you one clear headline that I think will summarize the, the text itself. And it's a call. The call is this. Do not blur or subvert in gender what God has made clear and beautiful. That's the call of the passage. Don't blur or subvert in gender, specifically what God has made clear and beautiful. Now, if you're a guest, you might think, man, what a wild first Sunday at the church. I did not expect, how do they pick these passages? Well, the way we pick these passages, it's the next one. So last week we did 10. Today we're doing 11. Next week, uh, I bet you can guess what we're doing next week. This is what we do. We walk through the Bible. And so you get to, to kind of listen in. But I hope you'll be intrigued. And I hope maybe your eyes will begin to adjust as we see the light of the scriptures. In this passage, the Bible is nothing if not clear and helpful. Now, before we begin uh, in the passage itself, I want to begin with three starting points, three gender-defining starting points that I think Paul is assuming and his readers are assuming, but we in our current culture cannot assume. And here are the three assumptions coming into this passage. Humanity is created, gender is created and designed, and third, authority is woven into creation by design. So first, humanity is created. Now notice, important to note that, that rather than referring to culture first as it relates to gender, this passage and Paul and the Word of God point us back to relationship with God. So rather than thinking horizontally about gender, we think vertically about gender. And notice the, the string of words in this passage. Verse 8, twice it says, he made, God made. Uh, verse 9 says, he created, God created. Verse 12, he made, God made. And in our culture, that, that is hugely important because the way that we determine identity in our culture today as human beings is, is one of two ways, usually. We either seek to discover who we are, which is sort of a post-enlightenment category, if you care about that, and then uh, we, or in most modern culture, we seek to create who we are. Meaning we, we design ourselves. If you ever played a video game where you get to pick your own character, you're like, I don't like that hair. I don't like that body. I want to be bigger. I want to be smaller. I want to have, you know, I want to have a tattoo. I don't like the tattoo, right? You're just, that's sort of what we're doing now in our cultural categories. Here's what it means for me to be a human being. The answer to the question, who creates our identity, who defines our identity is this. God does. God creates, God makes, God defines. Now, this is hugely freeing, and it lays a claim on our lives. It's hugely freeing because we are not, brothers and sisters, ultimately defined by the opinion of our ex-boyfriends or girlfriends, no matter what they're saying about us on Facebook. We are not defined by our bitter coworker and what they've said about us. We are not defined by our test scores or our criminal record or lack thereof, by our resume, by our number of social media followers. We are only defined by who God says we are. And that should be incredibly, incredibly freeing in this culture. But second, it lays a claim on our lives. It means this, we don't get to decide who we are. We don't. We don't get to discover it somewhere else. We don't get to create it for ourselves. God defines it. Second, gender is created and designed. Notice that creation and design in, as it comes to gender is, is male and female. 
The, the complementary creation of the male and the female was made by the maker. It is, male and female are not accidental. They're not incidental to what it means to be a human. They were designed. They were made by the maker. And there, there is a fundamental maleness and femaleness that transcends even culture and, and age and continent. God designed it so. And this also is hugely freeing. And it lays a claim on us. It frees us because what it means to be a, for example, a worthy and valued woman is not defined by your how many out of ten attractiveness rating. It is not defined by your mother-in-law. That's a word for someone. Um, it's not defined <laughs> by mommy bloggers and how, what they think about how you're raising your kids. Similarly, for men... What it means to be a man is not defined by your muscle definition or your high school sports record. Some of you are still living there. It's okay. <laughs> well, for good or for bad. It's also not defined by your dad and his disappointment in you or your dad and his pride in you. What it means to be a man, or what it means to be a woman, is only defined by the Lord himself. And that means you can, you can put to rest all the other voices around you and listen to him. But it also lays a claim on your life. It means that what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, is not up at the most ultimate essence of itself, it's not up to you, it's up to your maker. He has made you a man or a woman, and the, the way to determine what that means is to go back to the maker and ask, what does this mean? That, that is gender. Gender is created and designed. And third, authority is woven into creation by Design. As if this could not be more controversial in our culture, Paul adds submission and authority into this in verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now that, that middle phrase probably blares, it's like a flashing red light in 21st century America. What do you mean the head of a wife is her husband? But I think one of the things that happens, though, when we see that is when we think of the head of, of something, we think of that, the head of a company, right? That some CEO, some big shot, right, you know, doesn't, doesn't take coach anymore. He's on a, a private plane. He's coming in. He's firing people. He's hiring people. He's the big honcho. Everybody defers to him. And we think, is that, is that what a husband is? No. In fact, Paul's reference is not to the business world or um, the, the cultural world. Paul's reference for what this means is, well, it's a reference to God himself. It says that last phrase, that the head of Christ is God. Meaning that, that Jesus in his earthly ministry often said, I do nothing apart from what my father tells me to do. And everything my father tells me to do, I then do. And, and, and it upends our categories of authority and submission. Because it, it must mean that whoever is under authority, it, does, well, it must not mean rather that whoever is under authority is less valued. It must not mean that whoever is under authority is demeaned in some ontological, uh, essential way. Christ was not demeaned by obeying his heavenly father. And so, whatever else, whatever categories we're using to think about these things, Scripture calls us, put the cultural categories away, listen to the Lord. Right? That, that is where we want to lean in. And also notice this, authority is so woven into the fabric of creation that everyone in this passage is submitted. Somehow in the Trinity, God submits, at least functionally during Christ's ministry, to God. Every man submits to Christ. So in the most fundamental sense, the head of every man is Christ. Uh, the head of every household is Christ, as the Christ is the head of the man, right? The head of every wife then is her husband. And yet, those in the passage that are submitted to someone else are no less glorious. As we will see later, the, the, the man being the head of the household is contrasted with, in verse 7, the woman being the glory of the man. So one is the head and one is the glory. 
Neither are demeaned. And authority and submission are woven into God's design. Now, as we approach the passage, a few things to note up front. A few orienting uh, notes before we... We're going to actually read the passage again. Because I found with this passage in particular, the first time you read through it, you're just like, what in the world? You can't even hear it. You're just, you know, it's like... Hairstyles and baldness, and the, because of the angels, and what is happening? So, we're going to read it in just a second. But before we do, I want you to hear three, uh, three things. First, as we approach the passage, remember that Paul's counsel and direction stem from a particular problem in the Corinthian church that he is responding to. So these aren't just a collection of, of general principles and abstract, but they are specific corrections to something happening in Corinth. And so it's important for us to understand the text in the world of Corinth before we try to bring the text into our world. Otherwise, we will misapply it. That's the first thing to note. Second, note as we approach the passage that the Bible, and this is tough as a preacher, the Bible does not give us all the information we would like to have about this problem. But it does give us all the information that we need to have when it comes to this problem. So there, there are details of the text, speculations. I mean, I've seen so much ink spilled, people saying, what about this? What, you know, they're trying to tie things together. From a, you know, just like, okay, we just don't know. We don't know exactly what was going on at this gathering in Corinth, but we have what we need. And the third thing to note before we approach the passage is this. There are clear cultural issues, but as we understand them in their context, we then begin to recognize principles that apply not just in first century Corinth, but principles that apply to all people, in all places, at all times. And one of the dangers of a passage like this is that we begin to go, okay, well, um, if this passage must go in the pile of scriptures, like, okay, we used to not eat pork, but I guess now we eat pork. We used to not eat shellfish, but I guess we eat shellfish now. So I guess this is just one of those things that just stays in the past. We don't have to pay attention anymore. We skip it and move on to the next passage. No, no, no. I will tell you in particular what to look for. Whenever Paul references, not the Corinthian culture, but creation, right? He's referencing a creational principle that is not just true for those in Corinth, but for those in 21st century America and for every culture beyond. So, we want to find those, hold fast to them. Now, with that in mind, we're going to back up. I'm going to read again verse 4 through the end. And I want you to, with those things in mind, begin to process some of this. Verse 4. This is his concern. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Notice the play on words there. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Again, another play on words. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Which, side note, I think that's essentially just a reference to because it's displaying something into the universe. Angels being one of the onlooking things. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a man is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, uh, as we approach this, there's going to be two calls of the text that I think are clear, that are for every age and every people and every person that come to us today. And the first call is this. Do not subvert God's design for gender. Do not subvert it. Uh, I think this first is happening in verse 4. The man who prays or prophesies with his head covered. Now, there's one of two things happening. Either 
the man who is praying with his head covered is either, you could say it this way, drifting into femininity or hyper-masculinity. And here's what I mean. It seems as though in this context, there, there is a side that, that placing a cover on could have been done in some strange solidarity with the women in a way of identifying with the women in the church as, where Paul would say uh, there's no Jew or Greek in Christ, no slave or free, no male or female. And so it's sort of this genderless, hey, we're all just Christians now. There's no real male or female. I'm going to wear a head covering, which is culturally appropriate for women. That's possible. And Paul says, if that is the case, you are subverting God's design for gender. But similarly, there's, there's probably a more compelling argument to be made that this could actually have been, in a sense, a hyper-masculine, not hyper-masculine in that sense, maybe the, the um, sinfully hyper-masculine is probably the way to say it, uh, because sometimes people who were priests, who were pagan priests, would, would put a cloak on, or a ruler would put a cloak over their head to symbolize their authority to issue edicts or tell people what to do. And so in a way, the man might have even been saying, listen, I am the authority here. You all listen to me now. And it's, it's as if he is removing himself from under the authority of Christ and saying, I'm the authority. And to that we say as well, brothers, how dare we? How dare we act as if we were the head of our lives, as if we are the king of our castle. How dare we boss others around or live unaccountable, unsubmitted lives that do not recognize Christ's lordship and headship over us. We must not. That too is a subversion of gender. And I think often men are alerted to the danger of, well, I don't want to drift into femininity here, but... Scripture also calls us away from beginning to subtly even say, well, I'm the head of my own life, not Christ. Lord, help us. Now, because this is specifically within marriage, we want to apply that within the context. So, turning our attention to the wife in this case, to the woman in this case, it's possible that in the name of being a free Christian, a wife in the gathering could act in ways that remove her distinct design as a wife and as a woman. And we'll talk about the wife aspect in a second, but, but I think there is a, a specific, almost uh, um, apart from the marital aspect, a, a gender aspect to this. That, that women or wives should not act in ways that subvert their gender, that demean their gender, that destroy their gender. And, and Paul sees the danger with both, and he's calling both not to subvert or demean God's design. Now, John Piper is helpful here. Um, he has a lot of material here. I, may, I think we're going to put this in the... Um, he does a great Ask Pastor John on the question of, can a man have long hair? And that was the question somebody wrote to him. And so he gives this response. But his response is so helpful. And, and he, he responds by specifically zeroing in on verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you the following? So here's his comment. I think Paul is saying that nature, that is natural in intrinsic maleness includes a man, inclines a man rather, to feel repulsed and shameful for wearing culturally defined symbols of womanhood. This is not because kilts in Scotland are sinful. So if, brother, if you, I mean, feel free if you are a kilt fan. Uh, or that long earrings on men in Papua New Guinea are sinful. This is because whatever culturally defined accompaniments of femininity are in a culture, a man's nature as a male will find this, that Greek word, prepone, unseemly, improper, shameful. Did nature teach the Corinthians that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Yes, it did. Nature did because the God-designed healthy male soul revolts against clothing himself in symbols of femininity, just like the God-designed healthy female soul revolts against presenting herself as a man. This revolt from nature is a God-given teacher. So he's saying within that context is what we are looking at. Now we must then address, uh, in our world today, broadly speaking, the reality of transgenderism. And I would even say the grieving reality of transgenderism. 
And we want to lean in first with compassion here. Some do experience profound gender dysphoria, and that is a, a sad result of, of living in a fallen world in which every aspect of ourselves is broken. Our minds, our bodies, our, our souls, all of it is cracked and bent. And we Christians, more than anyone else, should understand the, the profound effects of brokenness on us at every level. Mostly because we see those profound effects when we look in the mirror. None of us look in the mirror and think, well, that person's whole. No, we all have cracked and bent lives, both physically and mentally and spiritually, all of it. Yet here is where the church has an opportunity to be both compassionate and courageous. We must say clearly, as we, we will speak on in a minute, it will not result in good now or in eternity for individuals to, to mar or seek to change their gender. They are taking a design, a, a, a maidenness, a createdness intrinsic to them that God placed there for their good and for his glory and to seek to disregard or change it is chasing the wind. But lest then we look with self-righteousness toward the world, we must examine ourselves. We as a church must examine ourselves. We must, we must first respond to this, not by looking out there, but by looking in here and by celebrating and rejoicing in our gender as God has made us. Now, I'm going to be transparent here. Um, I often, growing up, felt ill-suited to be male within the context of my family. Uh, and, and one of the reasons was my grandfathers were both very physically strong men. Uh, my, my Mississippi grandfather was a general contractor his whole life and was a tough guy. And I remember as a kid trying to put my hand around, my little hand, I have this distinct memory, trying to put my little hand around his bicep and I couldn't. I'd be like, uh, uh, you know, like that. And he would flex and it would be like a rock. But as I grew up, I remember growing up with his granddad and doing projects with him and he's torquing things and he's like pulling stuff out of the wall. And he's, you know, even in his 60s, he's doing this stuff. And I remember feeling his bicep and going home at age 12 and feeling my bicep <laughs> and thinking something has gone generationally wrong in our family. And on the other side, my, my, my dad's father was also a very strong man in a number of respects. Very, very athletic in many ways. Um, loved playing baseball. Was a swimmer into his 80s. He lived till his late 90s. I mean, he just was like the Terminator. He just would keep going. And, and I just remember thinking, okay, just even with these two men in my family, uh, as reference points, other guys in my family, very ma you know, masculine seeming, physically strong, tough, all those things, and looking at myself in the mirror at age 12 and 13 and thinking, I'm not that. So what do I do? Right? What do I do then? How, like, I don't feel suited to be that, if that's what that is. And the reality is this. It's taken me years, I think, to get to a place. See, see here's, here's where I'm pushing, okay? It is one thing to say, confess, God made me a man. It is another to get to the point where we say, God made me a man and it is good. And he made no mistakes. Right? Even if you feel like, man, I don't feel some of these stereotypes, that's okay. You don't look at the culture, look at the Lord, look at his word, and look at yourself in light of those things, and then get to the point where you're able to say with faith, I'm not just a man, I'm not just a woman, I am a man made by God. I'm a woman made by God as a woman, and I believe and rejoice that it is good. Man, I just, I just have such a, look, such a burden especially for my sisters on this issue. You, you, you are feeling 
such contradictory cross-cultural currents that, that, that if you listen to everyone in the culture trying to tell you what it means to be a woman, you, you have to be exquisitely beautiful but without a lot of effort because you don't want to be, you don't want to expend too much effort not, and, and you have to be a, a boss at work and, and yet soft and also still feminine. You got to be able to rock a, a, a pantsuit and, and walk in and take charge of a meeting but you also need to wear a dress and be, be soft and, 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 and sort of, sort of feminine in all the best ways, and you got to be able to keep up with the boys if you're playing uh, soccer, but not be too masculine, you know, and it's just, it's just these constant cross currents that, that, here's what I'm praying that you're able to do today, sisters, that you tune out the cultural voices and listen to your maker, that he has made you a woman, and he did not make a mistake, and he calls it good. And receive the reality of that in your life. And second, we just, we not only rejoice in it, we must also then rein in our self-expression within the boundaries of God's design. One of the, the cultural pushes that, that we, one of the cultural currents, you could say it that way, in our culture is that self-expression uh, and uniqueness uh, and, and being utterly one of a kind is one of the paths to self-fulfillment and and peace and satisfaction. So you have to continue to, and I think it's one of the reasons we continue to press on these boundaries of gender because we want to be unique. We want to be special. We want to be one of a kind. And yet we have to remember, brothers and sisters, that, that scripture does define boundaries for what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Now we could dive into, I was talking to Jen, my wife, this morning. Man, we could take any specific style of dress or article of clothing and, and spend an hour on it. But, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commend you to simply have this conviction that the way that I express maleness and femaleness, those expressions must be within the boundaries that the Lord has set for me, for my good. So that's that's the call not to subvert God's design for gender. Now, second, do not subvert God's design for marriage. Now, as we've said, this, this primarily relates, this passage primarily relates to the way a married woman is acting within the gathered church. Um, Eric Redman gives a helpful overview of the issue of head coverings. Uh, some of you are thinking, like, at some point, though, he's going to explain the head coverings, right? What is up with those? Okay, I'm going to ask Dr. Redman to help us with this. He says this. The covering or veiling of the head as a sign of submission was a practice of Jewish women and a practice known in East Asia among women, not a practice of Corinth, meaning not, not for that specifically, it's just these cultures around mixing. A man veiling his head in public worship when praying would be dishonoring to his own head, showing a sign that would, be, that would hinder his role in pointing to Christ as his head. In contrast, a woman unveiled would be showing herself to be free from male authority, like prostitutes who wore uncovered heads. Communicating the sexual freedom of a prostitute would have been as shameful as being without hair for a woman in Corinth, which would have been a shameful thing. Praying or giving prophecy without a sign of submission would be, listen, a denial of the order of creation. Now again, it is tempting to say, well listen, this, this whole business of, of husbands being the head of households and being submitted and signs of authority, isn't it just a relic of an old culture? No. But notice what Paul does. Paul ties this not to a current cultural moment, but rather he ties his counsel back to God's created design. So there's a, a lot there we could unpack. We, we will fly over it. But notice this, the woman was created from man and after man and is brought then under the man's mission as given by God. So, so, so God is saying something in the creation story. He could have just made them simultaneous. But, but notice this, God creates Adam. He gives Adam a charge. He gives Adam a mission. And then he says, we need a helper fit for Adam. That word helper means someone who brings strength to where it is lacking. So the, the man needs help, but, but the woman is not given her own separate mission. She's brought into Adam's mission and is perfectly suited 
to do something within that relationship. To bring strength where it is needed to build that house. Now, so much more we could say there. But, I think if you, if you sort through all the cultural issues, what Paul's concern is this. Is the way the wife is behaving in the context of the church honoring her husband or shaming him? Right, that is, that is a universal concern. Is the way she's, she's interacting with those inside and outside the church, is she honoring this man and his God-given, God-designed distinctives, or is she undermining it, disregarding it, and shaming him? And I think that is a relevant question for any and every age, Sisters, let me, let me ask you, are there ways, especially if you're a wife, are there ways as a wife in which you may be tempted to demean or dishonor your husband in big ways or small ways? Are there ways in which you seek to undermine his call to be the, the, the spiritual leader in your home, to be the head of a household? Are there ways in which you try to subtly remove any trace of that biblical relationship and, and, and in the sake of equality, destroy distinctiveness? And perhaps one of the best gauges of this is, is how do you speak about him? How do you speak about him to your children? How do you speak about him to your friends? How do you speak about him to others who know you? That's the call to every wife. And then look at the call to the husbands here. Uh, Paul pushes on the husbands in a couple of ways to make sure they're thinking and acting biblically. First, he provides, uh, one of the brothers was, after the service, the first service was joking with me, a, a very humbling reminder that Paul offers in the text that, that women... I mean, you just think, okay, well, duh. But he says, okay, and men, so women were made out of man and the creation story, but every single man is born of a woman. Meaning this, that every big, strong man with large biceps who impresses others at the gym once came from a woman uh, naked and crying like a baby waiting for his little diaper to be changed. Right? And so there's this, there's this humility woven in to, to, to what it means to be a man. To, lest men go like, yeah, I don't need anybody. No, you, you did. Um, you still do, and you did. Uh, let's illustrate, right? You, your mom, I am sure, has some little precious baby pictures of you that she can whip out if you ever feel too proud. And so feel free to, wives, get a hold of those if needed. Um, now, here's the second thing, though. A contrast in verse 7. This, this beautiful, I mean, we could spend the entire message on this, on this phrase, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, now notice this, that as relates to the two individuals here, the, the man and the woman, that there is an appropriate headship that the man has, and that perhaps defines some of his relationship with the woman, but that there is another aspect of his relationship with the woman, which is this, that she is his glory. And if you go up earlier into the text, the comparison is that, that Christ is submitted to his father, but Christ is also the glory of his father. That, 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 that God the Father delights to highlight the work of Jesus Christ. To, to lift him up before all creation and to say, Behold my son, in whom I am well pleased. Like at like his baptism. You, you go, then you image that, you go back to Genesis 2, where, where what Adam sees his wife Eve, and he does not say, aha, now an opportunity to exercise my authority. Now listen, I'm the manager, you're the assistant manager here, and he doesn't do that. What he does is this, he sees this woman, and he says, this last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he sings over her. And all of a sudden, his life changes such that his responsibility, his first responsibility is to love her, to protect her, to care for her, to, to make her his glory, as the scripture would say. The glory of his household. And that pattern continues, brothers. It continues that the glory of each of our households, our glory is our wife. 
And so the question today for us as husbands is this. Do you see your wife as the glory of your life and your family? Do you treat your wife as a glorious, precious thing? Are there any ways in which you may have taken her for granted or, or treated her as an obstacle to your own happiness or a vehicle for your own happiness? How do you speak about her to your children, to your friends, to those who know you? Would others listening in on your speech for a week conclude, oh man, she is his glory. That's the way he talks about her. Lord, help us. Now, uh, as we close now, those two principles should land on us. And in closing, I want to just highlight three uh, three brief, actually two brief things and then close with an encouragement. So, um, First, I just want to share a burden I have for us as a church. Uh, we want to be a place, Cross of Grace Church should be a place, by God's grace, that is a place of gender sanity and a place of gender celebration in a world of gender confusion. We want to value and honor when men are men. We want to value and honor when women are women. Right? We want to be a church where mothers in the faith are valued and rejoiced over. Where fathers in the faith are valued and rejoiced over. And that they're not the same. They're re- they, they display God's glory in, in different and complementary ways, even in the gathering of the church. I mean, just think, when we sing on Sundays, when I hear female voices, it is beautiful in a way that the male voice is not. And when men sing, you know, you get a good, like, low-end hymn where you can finally feel the rumble of some of the guys' bass voices. You're like, yeah, there it is. Stop singing that weird Chris Tomlin high stuff. Let's do, you know, a, a mighty fortress again, you know. But then there's a beauty to the high stuff, right? It's this complementariness in the church that we should say this is beautiful. And one of the ways we apply this is by holding the theological distinctive. I want to make a note of this because this has been broadly challenged in the church right now. We want to make the distinction that we believe pastor elders are male. And, and that those doing authoritative teaching in the church, doing the, the father work of the church, the, the correction, the doctrinal guarding, the, the, the preaching of the word, that, that those, it's appropriate and right that those be men. Because in a sense, they are, there are some men that are the head of their household and are doing that work within their household. And there's some men that God calls to do that for the, the broader household of the church and to say, not that, not this. We need to guard from this. Let's, and, and it's a dad moment in a sense. We need to preserve that, that elders are fathers in the faith and not mothers. And mothers in the faith are glorious and distinct and not fathers. That's what we want to preserve. And then as it relates to the world, uh, I want to encourage us because I think as I've seen the Christian reaction to transgenderism in the world around us, there are two off, too often, I'm going to oversimplify, often two general camps when it comes to the church's response to transgenderism. Uh, the first is the compassion camp and the second is the courage camp. The compassion camp is like, man, we just need to do anything we can to make these people feel comfortable in the church. We want to help anyone, regardless of, of what they look like, to feel welcome in the church. And, and for much of that, we, would, we should and could and, and, and I hope and pray do say amen that we do want anyone to be able to, be, to, to come in, worship and rejoice and to feel like we value them as a human being. Man, I, I pray for that. But then you have another camp. It's like, no, no, no. The thing that they need also is truth. We got to make the truth clear. We got to hold on to the, to the scriptures. We got to hold tight to these truths of, of male and female gender. We got to be out in the public square advocating for this. And so you have one group that's all compassion, potentially. One group that's all courage, potentially. And the, the reality is this. The Bible calls us to both. The Bible does not allow us to pick one or the other. Would you, it's like when you walk into a wedding and you sit, bride or groom side, you know, every Christian doesn't walk into this issue and go, oh, would you like to be on the compassionate side or the courageous side? It's just one side. It's the compassion and courage side. And here is the reality. We are not compassionate to the world around us if we do not speak the truth. 
We are not compassionate. But similarly, we are not courageous if we do not in our compassion move toward people caught in brokenness and lostness. We are not courageous. Like it is, it is way easier to, to, to fire off a rant in a prayer meeting or, or whatever than it is to invite that neighbor to our dinner table and, and, and work through that mix of courage and compassion it takes to, to draw them to Christ and to point them to Christ. That's how I think we should relate to the culture. And then last, in our own homes, I think the clear best way to push back on the tide of gender confusion is to hold and live as male and female in God's design in our own personal lives, right? It is, let me just say this, it is easy to post a rant online about gender confusion within our culture, but it is far harder to reconcile with our spouse after a conflict, like, I, I would much rather <laughs> post a rant than try to reconcile. Especially if the Bible tells me as a husband, you, you're to lay your life down for your wife the way Christ laid down his life for the church. That means, man, I better, I got to lead in repentance. And I don't want to do that. I'd rather do the rant. Can I do the rant? No. That's what it means to fight. Similarly, it's easy to criticize our culture in a coffee shop. But it is far harder to confess in that same coffee shop across from that same brother or sister, a pattern of pornography that demeans God's design for gender and marriage. It starts with us. It starts with our own personal lives. And last closing encouragement is this. We want in all these things, in, a, in the church and in the culture and in our own personal families, we want these truths about creation and gender to be not just true, held as not just true, but also held as beautiful. And years ago, I remember, uh, to my recollection, the only time a limo pulled up to our house. Uh, we, we, we lived in this cul-de-sac with this long circular kind of driveway growing up. And, and I remember being a kid, looking out the window, and this giant black limousine pulls up to our house. And as a kid, I'm like, whoa. I don't think I'd ever seen a limo up close. And so I'm like, whoa. And I'm sure even the, the neighborhood is looking in and going, who's over there? Is there a celebrity going to visit the Alcantas? You know, is there, like, what's going on over here? Oh, you know, it wasn't a normal occurrence. So the, the limo comes. And I'm sure, I, I think even my mom was momentarily, if I remember right, momentarily taken aback. Like, what is going on? Why is there a limo in our driveway? Thinking, about, knowing my mom, this is not good. What's going on? What do they want? Is this some, you know... And, and my dad, I, just, I don't remember how he did it, but I just remember my dad basically saying, in, in not so many words, honey, this is for you. This is for you. And he, they'd already planned to go on a date, but it was, it was a date date, right? This is, we're going in a limo. And to my knowledge, they got dressed up. My mom is wearing, you know, a dress she doesn't normally wear. Uh, and my dad is wearing his best suit. They get in the limo and my dad's holding the door for her. And she's getting, you know, and I remember as a kid watching this, watching them drive off and just thinking, huh. And I remember it, it stuck in my mind because Here's a re and I'm so glad I have that memory because it helped me understand something important that, that the truth about marriage and gender is not just true, it is also beautiful. Right? That there's a beauty to that moment. There's a beauty to my dad honoring my mom in that moment. Taking a big swing, you know. I don't know if she was prepared for it. I don't know how much planning he did, but I just remember it's like this is great. This is great. And I think, brothers and sisters, that's what I think this passage would call us toward. Not just that we hold the truth that we're men and we're women and we're husbands and we're wives, but that it is beautiful and we want to preserve its beauty. Because what this points forward to is something even more true and even more beautiful than any marriage. Look, my parents were, were wonderful parents, uh, faithful in their marriage, but they, they were not perfect. You know, I saw them fight and repent and reconcile and, and uh, uh, just had a front row seat to all that. But, but there was a beauty in that that pointed forward to another day. A day 
when the bride of Christ would be reunited with Christ the bridegroom and he would, having prepared a place for her, come to the bride and say, bride, this is for you. There is something in that limo moment that is an echo of the future reality of the bride of Christ being reunited with Christ the bridegroom and we brothers and sisters have an opportunity that we not just hold the truth but that we rejoice over it. That we if we're married we love our spouse as a reflection of that day. If we're single we hold marriage and gender that beautifully and that clearly that we that we as a church hold it up and say to a world of gender confusion and and, and brokenness and seeking uh, happiness and life in, in all the wrong places that we hold out something true and beautiful, the thing that our world needs most, the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we do it. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord, I want to, just feeling led to pray in a particular way, Lord, try to be faithful to that, so help me. Lord, I want to I pray over our church, and I want to pray over the sisters in our church, over the women in our church. Lord, I pray, just really feel a, a, a specific burden. I pray that you would free them from cultural and family and life expectations of what it means for them to be a woman. And you speak to them as your daughter. Lord, I pray that they would value the way you have made them and that they would call it not just true but beautiful. I pray similarly for my brothers, Lord, that that we would not define ourselves based on any one of a thousand cultural values in the world, our sales numbers, our degrees, our bench press, Lord, all these foolish things that we as men often compare with one another. Lord, I pray that we would tune out the cultural voices and, and hear your voice calling us your sons, that we would receive what you have made and call it good. And I pray over our husbands and wives, Lord, I pray that... that that there would be this, this beautiful pattern of, of authority that is somehow also coupled with honoring and glory, that, that there would be a, a, a Christological glimpse of beauty in every marriage. And Lord, I, I, pray, I, I pray also, Lord, to this morning for your protection over these married couples. Lord, there are, there are so many cultural currents pushing and pulling them in so many ways, so many ways that marriages fracture and, and break and, and we bring our own brokenness into our marriages, Lord. And I pray for your preserving protection over the couples in our church. And Lord, I pray for couples that are estranged, Lord, that you would draw their hearts back together, that you would, you would allow them to come together again, Lord, if that is your will. Lord, I pray for our singles, that you'd preserve them and protect them. I pray that they would not be defined as a man or as a woman by their relationship status, but by the status that they hold as a son or daughter of God. And I pray, Lord, that the word would be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, that on these matters, you would guide us, that we would see in you a safe place, a solid place, a sturdy place to stand in a world that is all sinking sand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.